<laughs> so, hey, Chris. Hey, Kara. How are you? I am bueno. Hey, Pasa. How are you? Um, I'm feeling very anxious. So today we're going to be talking to John Marks, and he gave a wonderful talk in our department yesterday about the four myths of Darwinism, and I totally recorded it, except I totally recorded an hour and two minutes of dead air instead of him actually talking. Oh, so you didn't unplug it, as you previously thought you might have done or it might have happened. How did you record dead air? So I think there's a connection from the receiver to the recorder, and I believe that that cord like got dislodged so it just wasn't picking up the sound the way it should have been and so it just picked up dead noise because it wasn't actually getting any input you know kira they pay us the big bucks to get our audio visual technology correct and train us the big bucks indeed to do all of those things because yeah kara has learned a couple of very important lessons with this of check the cords after professor it says comma event planner Right, planner and audio technical specialist yeah. and podcast specialist and all the things that I actually am not and yet have to do at all times. Which will explain why some of our interviews are less than the optimal quality for your listening pleasure, folks. Apologies, but yeah, we have zero training in this, so we do our best. Zero training. Zero so training. Forgive yourself. It's not the first or the last time either of us or anybody else we know in this job doing these things on the fly, figuring it out within seconds of turning it on and recording is yeah. liable to do. And so basically, we're going to be conducting this interview from what I heard during the talk and took notes and the poster that labels what the formats of Darwinism were. Fortunately, I have also read lots of John's work. And even though I did not see his lecture when he came here to Alabama because I had to go to a funeral, I heard lots about it. It was many, many years ago, so I don't know if we want to bring that up. But he's a prolific scholar, and I use his material in my courses a lot. So we've read his work. Yeah, he's written a number of books, award-winning books at this point. And he also has a very interesting history, if we can, because he's actually started out as a geneticist. Yeah. Uh, and has kind of turned into the history and theory of science, which is very interesting. Well, well it makes sense because that's what I use him for, right? He, he pokes holes in a lot of genetic myths, right? One of my favorite being the whole idea that the 1% difference between chimpanzees and humans makes any difference whatsoever. I think he pointed out that most of the differences are related to gene regulation and have less to do with that 1% difference than we make it out to be and, mm -hmm. and so many other things. And I don't know how he feels about me saying this, but the memorable piece of his lecture about 10 years ago now was when he suggested that people misusing genetics to reify the race concept were going to have a visit from him planting his foot up their ass. So, Yeah, no, he's promised to drop some F-bombs during this interview because he forgot to drop them during the talk, so we might have to hold him to that. All right, well, fair enough. So, uh, warning, uh, F-bomb alert, and we're always supposed to say that when we plan to be cursing, which is yeah. never something we plan. It just sort of happens, but nonetheless, ask your kids what these words mean because, of course, <laughs> nothing said here is in any way, shape, or form bizarre to most children, but nonetheless, there you go. 
disclaimers in. Though John Marks is a professor at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, he's actually been at the University of Notre Dame for the past six weeks as part of the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Study. And he might tell us a little bit about that. We have a box going, so that's something. So we were actually just mentioning, John, first, welcome to the Sausage of Science, and thank you so much for taking some time out of your day, your last day here at Notre Dame, to chat with us. Hello. Hi, Chris. We've passed in the halls. <laughs> yeah, so thank you and welcome, and we were, we were just mentioning that uh, the episode we posted today from Adam Johnson, you know when you've worked with Adam Johnson, and you actually get mentioned in that podcast, believe it or not, as providing him with some really good advice and dealing with the tragedy at UNC Charlotte. Yeah, I listened to, to the podcast uh, earlier this morning, and uh, glad to hear Adam's doing well. He's a smart guy, and I hope he does very well uh, in his PhD at Texas San Antonio. That's great. So we like to start these things out kind of similarly for everybody, and that's getting your origin story basically in our field. And so your origin story to where you are now intellectually is, is quite the journey. And so tell us how you got into anthropology and especially genetics, and then how you've kind of seen this arc in your career focusing on history of science, theory of science, and theology as well. Sure. Well, I started out as a pre-med undergraduate at Johns Hopkins, and uh, about 70% of my class was pre-meds on day one of freshman year. About 20% more were, the, were pre-law, and the rest of the class was the lacrosse team. And actually, my class destroyed a 100-year-old honor code at Johns Hopkins. There was so much cheating in my class that they revoked the honor code the year after we graduated. And probably the one thing I learned as an undergraduate was that I sure did not want to spend four more years with the same people I had just spent four years with. <laughs> so my parents had moved from New York to Arizona uh, over the course of my undergraduate uh, career. So I registered at the University of Arizona as a master's student in genetics because that was the science that I had liked uh, most as an undergraduate. And I was kind of unhappy working with fruit flies and yeast and things that I didn't think were all that interesting. And then I started partying with archaeologists, which is always deadly. It wasn't, it wasn't ordinary archaeologists either. It was, I think, the, maybe the second year of the garbage project that was run by Bill Rathje at Arizona. So it was a should I uh, fill your audience in on the garbage project? It's useful for our listeners who, who may not be familiar. Okay. It's a great project. Well, in archaeology, of course, there's this idea that when you excavate a site, you're excavating what people used. But in fact, what you excavate is what people threw away when they left the site. And there had never been a study actually trying to relate what people use to what people throw away. And uh, Bill Rathje had developed this idea of getting undergraduates for credit to sort through the garbage of Tucson. And it, it was anonymous, but by census tract. And so um, on weekends, undergraduates would just get their hands dirty and sort through the garbage of Tucson um, and, and weigh out rotting meat and count the beer cans and stuff like that. And it was a bonding process. Um, what happened was, I guess they had arranged for an end of semester softball game against city sanitation. So every week um, they'd go out and practice, play softball, drink beer, as archaeologists have occasionally been known to do. 
And they had a nice team with no shortstop. Shortstop was my natural position. And I just started hanging out. And through that connection with the Garbage Project and archaeology, I actually learned that there was this field called biological anthropology. <laughs> and let me say that at Johns Hopkins, there wasn't an anthropology department. So I didn't even have an opportunity to, to study biological anthropology. They founded their department by raiding Yale many years later. So I learned that there was this field in which I could actually do genetics, but actually study more interesting questions than fruit flies and yeast. So I uh, finished my master's in genetics, switched into anthro and did a master's and PhD there. My dissertation was in chimpanzee chromosomes, but Arizona was very much a four field program. And, you know, they say that uh, converts are the most devout. And so I very, I got very involved in being a generalist anthropologist, not just someone who specializes in the chromosomes of chimpanzees. From there, I got a three-year postdoc at Cal Davis uh, in the genetics department. But again, you know, one of the things that I tried to do was self-identify as an anthropologist. So with the enthusiasm and energy of youth, I divided my time actually between the work I was doing in genetics and hanging out in the anthropology department. And it happened to be a very cool time in the anthropology department there at UC Davis. They had some great people. Um, it was Sarah Hurdy's first year teaching there. Henry McHenry was department chair. Uh, Meredith Small was a postdoc in anthropology. So, I, you know, Sarah was kind enough to let me sit in on her seminar, and I was able to socialize and keep a foot in, in biological anthropology while we were doing very early DNA sequencing, working on the um, hemoglobin genes of the great apes and comparing them to the human genes and doing, you know, some early molecular evolutionary studies. From there, I got my first academic job, which was at Yale University, and it's always a pleasure to be hired to teach somewhere that didn't accept you as an undergraduate. <laughs> We've heard that before. Right. So it took them about 10 years to realize their mistake. And uh, <laughs> after, 10 years, after 10 years, I moved on. They fired me and I moved to Berkeley. For <laughs> they called it the revolving door. It, I don't think it's a great shame to be in the bottom 85% of the Yale faculty. The, the trend tends to be to fire everyone that they hire at some point is, is what I hear. Could be, could be. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, moved to Berkeley. And uh, so I was there from 97 to 2000. And then I've been in Charlotte for the last 20 years. And uh, the job I have in Charlotte was the position that Kathy Reichs left when she started writing novels and then mm. the, uh, the TV show. Kathy Reichs of Bones fame, everyone. Bones, yeah. Sorry. No <laughs> Bones. Carrie, you knew that, right? I did know that, actually. All, you know, students, undergraduates especially, it's either pre-med or if they're interested in anthro, it's forensics. So right. <laughs> we're always familiar with that. Well, when I started grad school, it was because they watched Indiana Jones, and now they have all watched Bones. So. Yeah. It's the Bones generation. Yeah. And uh, the problem is, of course, that there aren't very many jobs in forensics. Um, you know, that, that's part of the fiction of the television show. Yeah. Um, so all these kids want to take uh, forensic anthropology because they think they're going to get jobs. And of course, that's not where the jobs are. But that's exactly. still what the, uh, the departments will sell. Because please, come to our department, take our classes. <laughs> we also get all reformed pre-meds. 
reformed. I like that. Yeah. That makes me happy. Doing what we're doing in biological anthropology is a lot more interesting than what they're doing in biology departments. You know, the fact is fruit flies, uh, you know, have a place in the history and, and, and in the, the study of, of life. But they're not as interesting as studying human evolution because ultimately um, we want to know who we are and where we come from. And you don't get that in biology. You get where what fruit flies are and where they come from. But if you want to know who we are and where we come from, you've got to study human variation, human evolution. You're going to do that in an anthropology department. Well put. So, John, you're here in Notre Dame, technically just down the hall from me right now, and you've been working with the Institute for Advanced Study, and this is not your first time coming to Notre Dame to, to work with that institute. And you gave a talk last Friday called Why Are There Still Creationists? And then this past Monday, you gave a talk about the four myths of Darwinism. And believe it or not, we have listeners who are not anthropologists and not academics, which is, you know, a rare thing, but we'll, we'll take it for sure. So maybe for them, you could explain a little bit of how somebody who is a geneticist, though an anthropologist, has now focused so much on kind of the history of anthropology uh, and the way it's been applied and misapplied, uh, which continues today. Well, of course, as I say, I started out doing genetics and um, had a molecular and, and cellular cytogenetics lab. But the three years that I was at Berkeley, I was technically a visitor. And so I wasn't in a lab. And when we got to Charlotte, if you've been out of a genetics lab for three years, I mean, the technology has completely changed. So fortunately, I had eclectic interests. And um, some of the things that I had been interested in and, and that I had experienced also as a junior faculty member um, were questions of scientific ethics and morality, which a lot of my senior colleagues did not want to hear about. I mean, this is, you know, the 1990s now. And I had been involved, for example, in, in three things during the decade that I was at Yale. Uh, I was involved, number one, with blowing the whistle on a case of a, a big case of scientific fraud. And when I say big, I mean it got six pages of spread in Science Magazine. It was sort of all over the place. The biggest case of scientific fraud in the 90s was the David Baltimore case. And ours involved DNA hybridization. That was all the rage in the 1980s. Turned out that all the numbers had been fabricated. And one of the things that fascinated me about that was when you could show absolutely dead to rights, these guys had falsified their data, they still had a lot of scientists to back them up. Um, and a lot of high-ranking scientists who were going to screw me. I learned something about, um, you know, the underbelly of science, if you will. I was also involved in criticizing some of the last old scientific racists in our field and scientific racists outside of our field. And I was also involved in peripherally to an extent in, in Native American property rights because, you know, 1990 was the passage of NAGPRA, Native American Graves Protection Rep Repatriation Act, in which museums of anthropology that had Native American bones were required to contact the tribes that they were from and ask really nicely if they could keep them because they were no longer the property of anthropology. They were the property of the tribe. And if you uh, weren't on good terms with the tribes that they came from, you might not get to keep those bones. And there was quite a controversy at the time uh, within anthropology, but it became clear that that was what we were going to, we as anthropologists were going to have to accommodate ourselves to, the empowerment of the people whose bones they, they in fact were. Well, one year later, one, one year after the passage of NAGPRA, 
the geneticists led by Cavalli Sports at Stanford um, decided that they want to clip off a piece of the Human Genome Project because all this money was going to medical geneticists. Maybe we population geneticists can get a piece of the action. How? Well, let's go out to the indigenous peoples of the world and collect their blood and take it back to Palo Alto and make a big blood repository of the indigenous peoples and we can study human microevolution. So they wanted to collect blood the year after the bones are having to be given back. And speaking to some of the geneticists about this, I tried to get them to recognize that they were swimming against the tide here. And there was a feeling that the rights of, or the property rights of indigenous peoples were being balanced against the interests of science, and science was going to be on the losing end, as science was on, if you will, the losing end of NAGPRA, because what that was about was balancing the, the property rights of Native Americans against the interests of science. So challenging the geneticists about the, the um, uh, collection of blood from indigenous peoples was another ethical issue. So I was involved in like three different ethical issues, all of which were very weird for a junior person to, to be getting involved with um, early in my career. And by the way, not a great career move at, at any level. So um, later in life, um, uh, I started thinking more more clearly and, and you know reading more. Uh, about this kind of stuff. And um, so I wrote a book in, what, 2009, I think, maybe 2011, called Why I'm Not a Scientist. Not a very well-titled book, um, but it, it's my science studies book. And the reason it's called Why I'm Not a Scientist um, is to highlight the ambiguous nature of anthropology as a science. You know, I've taught biology, you know, I've taught intro to biological anthropology at four universities. At two of them, you got science credit, and at two of them, you don't get science credit. And, you know, so that's a very ambiguous status right there. Is that right around the time? You were part of the committee, as I recall, for the AAA when the word science was removed from the charter or something like that? Was that around that period? I wasn't on the committee. But it, it wasn't removed. There was a committee that, wanted, that made a recommendation that anthropology be defined as broader than science to recognize right. that not only does it incorporate science, but it also incorporates a great deal of humanistic analyses and, and studies. And so the idea to remove science from the specific definition um, was really there to broaden anthropology beyond science. And Nicholas Wade at the New York Times went apoplectic, and we later learned about Nicholas Wade and his ideology. Um, but, but the bottom line was that actually that recommendation was voted down by right. the anthropology community, so it was a big tempest in a teapot. But, uh, you know, th there is an interest in what is science and, and how is anthropology science? And uh, what about, you know, we can talk about, you know, the, the top side, the, the good stuff in science, but what about the underbelly of science, which as it happens, I had experienced more than, more than most. So that was my book on that. And, and, and I realized that what I could do well and what I liked doing was more historical and programmatic stuff. And um, so that's kind of the niche that I've made for myself. I'm curious, you made the comment that it's never a good idea to get involved in these controversies at any stage of the career, but I, I see you in your blog writing as being quite good at 
being informed and critical where criticism needs to happen. So have you purposefully gone that route or do you see it as your role? And like, what is it like to carry that, that stress? I mean, it's stressful to be involved in controversies like this over and over again, which is why most people sort of shy away from them. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was advised at the time and quite properly uh, do it after you have tenure. Right. But the, the blog, I haven't written a blog post in a while. I'm going to do that actually as soon as I get home in, in, in the next week or so. But nowadays, we don't have book reviews at all in either the Journal of Human Evolution or the American Journal of Physical Anthropology. We just don't run them. And um, back in the uh, 90s, I actually got a reputation as being the person that reads books and will gladly... How dare you, John? Exactly. <laughs> Not only do I read books, but I'll gladly tell you what I think of them and in print. And, and of course, what that did, it served the role that blog posts serve now. But if you go back to the AJPA and the JHE in the 1990s, I, mean, I had a, at least one book review in almost every issue. Mm. And, you know, they were just opinion pieces. This is what I think of this book, which is, I think, what a book review is. And in fact, when, when Matt Cartmill took over the editorship of the AJPA, he invited me to be the book review editor, mm. um, which I had fabulous fun uh, doing. Could you get to meet people virtually, assign, you get to know what's out there in the literature and you get to interact with various people by inviting them to do book reviews. Much like being a podcast host. Exactly. I'm sure. Yeah. So, and, and I think it's a real shame now that um, we've kind of eliminated book reviews from, from our primary literature, but that's, you know, you can only whine about that so much. And so uh, <laughs> my piece. the work that I did the last time that I was here at the Institute for Advanced Study at Notre Dame uh, was in 2013-2014, and uh, at, at, then I wrote a book called Tales of the Ex-Apes, and that's uh, kind of synthetic work on human evolution, talking about the narrative aspect of, of talking about human evolution, and uh, got me into trouble with some of the real right-wing biologists who don't want to acknowledge, well, who, who don't want to acknowledge what the word ape means, um, and, of course, the word ape is a contrast term against human. That's why, classically, you know, the superfamily hominoidea is humans and apes. And what some people want to do now is cladistically redefine the word ape to include human. And, of course, what that does is it removes the, the contrast that the two words are there to set up. Um, and I think it's very important to acknowledge that we are descended from apes is a different statement from we are apes. And you are not your ancestors. And if you think about that, the idea that our ancestors were apes, therefore we are apes, is a very political statement. I mean, after all, my, my ancestors were peasants. I'm not a peasant. You're not your ancestors. And, and part of life is transcending your ancestry. After all, Darwin talked about evolution as being descent with modification. And the modification is 50% of the story there. Um, so anyway, um, there are right-wing biologists who went ballistic and said, uh, oh, you're a creationist. If you say we're not apes, like, dude, read something, read a book. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, after that, I wrote a book called Is Science Racist? question mark. Short answer, yes. But, but again, it, it came at, at a time in which we, we were now, I think, much more prepared to confront scientific racism than we were 20 years prior. 
I should throw out that before you came on, I referenced the talk you gave at Alabama. I wasn't there. I actually was at a funeral, so I missed it. But I heard about it, and I think it was around this time where you were critiquing scientific racism. And what I heard was that you got in an argument with some of the folks who, whose tendencies, in my opinion, this was not from you, but this is my experience of them, tends towards eugenics. This is the sort of right wing of the evolutionary biologist wing. And you told them if they misused genetics to support this idea of race equals species, you would personally put your foot up their ass. <laughs> personally, I don't remember saying that. However, it sounds like me. And of course, now at Alabama, you know, there's, there's, uh, well, I, I've done another podcast that actually comes from uh, Jim Binden and uh, Eric Peterson, who's a historian who did his PhD here at Notre Dame, uh, and now is in the history department at Alabama. Yep. Eric did an article on Josiah Knott for our book, Evolution Education in the American South. So we are all part and parcel of the same cohort of podcasting revolutionaries, if if you will, if I can, if I can go so far. Uh, and, and more power to you. I mean, this is, this is a, a really great service that um, you people do for the promotion of the field. But I do want to follow up on, on the question of like doing all that stuff. It gets heavy, right? There's a lot of tension and a lot of stress and a lot of critique that's necessary to keep, to, to point out the racism in anthropology, to point out you do that a lot. Does that weigh on you? Do you get a lot of backlash still for that type of thing? Less so now, partly for two reasons. A lot of the people that I was critiquing in the 1990s are dead. Mm, that helps. And, and the other thing is that their students are now tenured associate professors. And they have engaged with my work very productively. Yeah. So I'm seen very differently by people who are 10 years younger than me than I was by people 10 years older than me. That's fair. Uh, so the talk that you gave yesterday, which tragically did not get recorded, uh, was called The Four Myths of Darwinism. And I'm just going to quickly list the four myths and then ask you to discuss one. So the first one was Darwinism was theologically very directly threatening. Two, Darwinism was primarily opposed to biblical literists. Okay, that was a myth too. Yeah. <laughs> Darwinism <laughs> was apolitical. And four, anti-Darwinism was wrong. And I would like you to just discuss briefly, because we're going a bit long as it is, that Darwinism was apolitical, because I think this is something that comes up again and again, almost in cycles, mm -hmm. um, for people using evolution and Darwinism for various nefarious purposes. Yeah, um... Darwinism was always political. Um, uh, the two examples that I gave uh, in my talk were that um, as soon as the origin of species came out, you know, there was this disagreement in the scientific community, in the biology community, as to how many species of living people there were and what their relationship was to one another. As, as you know, the fact of the matter is, that 18 months after the origin of species is published, the Civil War breaks out. And the Civil War isn't being fought over giraffe necks or bird beaks. The Civil War is being fought over the relationship between black people and white people. Um, and one of the arguments, I mean, the, the dichotomy was two positions that we now call polygenism and monogenism. 
Monogenism is the idea that we're all descended from a single common ancestor, and consequently we're all brothers and sisters under the skin. Um, and this is obviously very harmonious with the biblical narrative that we're all descended from Adam and Eve. The other position was called polygenism, and polygenism was the idea that Adam and Eve were just progenitors of the peoples of Europe and the the Near East, but the peoples of the rest of the world were the products of other earlier separate creations by God, and consequently were not all brothers and sisters under the skin because we don't share common ancestors. That was used, actually, as a justification for slavery, for fairly obvious reasons. When Darwinism comes out, what Darwinism does is to resolve those two positions in favor of monogenism. We're all brothers and sisters under the skin. We have a common ancestor. But that common ancestor wasn't Father Adam. It was kind of a chimpanzee. But the point is that that was always very political. And as soon as the book comes out, Asa Gray, who is Darwin's supporter at Harvard, um, gets into an argument with Louis Agassiz, who is Darwin's antagonist at Harvard. And Asa Gray points out that phylogenetically, you take one step back from the present, and Africans and Europeans are united phylogenetically. Now, that's not in the origin of species, but it's certainly implied by the origin of species. So there's very, there's politics immediately there. And the second thing was uh, the leading leading Darwinian in Germany and leading spokesman for Darwinism in Germany was a man named Ernst Haeckel. And Haeckel actually believed not only in evolution, but that 12 living species of people had evolved. And those 12 living species of people were all at different uh, distances from the apes. And what Haeckel was doing was trying to create a linkage between humans and apes, which didn't exist in the fossil record in the 1860s, right? We had, we had two Neanderthal skulls. That was the entire human fossil record. So what Heckel is saying is we don't need a fossil record because the non-white peoples of the world form the missing links between Europeans and apes. And he published some horrifying caricatures of races of the world sort of integrating into uh, monkeys and apes. And even though the Brits didn't quite buy into the pictures and criticized the pictures, um, his books sold tremendously, uh, went through many different editions, and the text is very clear about there being different species of of humans and, and fitting in in different um, uh, positions relative to the apes. Could I ask a quick question, yeah. John? So sure. what concept of species was Haeckel working off of? Was, I mean, you know, in the biological species, is they either couldn't interbreed or if they tried, they would not have any form of, you know, viable offspring, but which obviously is not true. But so what species concept was he using to, to justify different species of humans? Well, of course, in the, in the 19th century, you don't have Ernst Meyer and the, and the biological species concept. So they're working mostly with an um, anatomical species concept, although certainly the fact that uh, all humans are interfertile was brandished as evidence for the fact that we are all one species. And I should point out that that fact was not proved by science. That was proved by sailors. But that's beside the point. (laughs) 
So uh, Darwin was very much a monogenist and his family was anti-slavery, but Heckel was working from uh, a, a different uh, idea of what species are and uh, mostly, I guess, a morphological kind of species. And then just to connect the dots of, of our past political model for evolu anti evolution or anti-evolution with the current one, John mentioned Eric Peterson, and I mentioned the chapter he wrote on Josiah Knott. Josiah Knott was at that time a polygenist, an anti-Darwinian evolutionist who promoted polygenism and who we here have a building named after, Knott Hall, which is where our honors college is, Wow! which they named because he started or was part of starting the Alabama Medical School. Right. He was a big anatomist, yeah. But after the Civil War, when I can't remember if they either started treating black soldiers or they had black doctors working there or something, he rescinded all his funding, moved back to New York, and basically gave the finger to the Alabama Medical College. And then a later president sort of waved his hands over the whole story and moved the Alabama Medical College to Tuscaloosa and named it in honor of him because he also supposedly found a cure for yellow fever that he didn't actually find. So lots and lots of politics. Yeah. And, and just to bring us completely up to date, like all the Confederate monuments people are trying to change, we've been saying we need to change the name of this building for a while, but it's actually a law in our state that the provost just showed me last week mm -hmm. when we complained about this. We have to get a petition to change it, then the Board of Trustees has to approve it. Then it goes before the committee at the state legislature associated with this law. So 100, 150 years of evolutionist-oriented racism still connected to politics in our country today. And still alive and well. Yeah, um, but, but certainly, you know, there is progress, and, and the progress is going to come from publicity. The more people know about this and the more that they know, um, the more disgusted they're going to be. And that's how laws get uh, changed. Yeah. That's why we asked Eric to write that chapter. So here's hoping. Excellent. Uh, anything else you wanted to finish up on Haeckel before we ask our fun question of the podcast? Well, you know, I think biologists are very defensive about Haeckel because creationists like to brandish the fact that he um, sort of falsified his, his images of embryos, showing that embryos uh, were very, much more similar than adult forms, um, but actually he was just recycling the same pictures of embryos. This um, was the ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny indeed. series. Yes, indeed. right. So they do get very defensive about Heckel, but I think we need to um, call him out and uh, recognize that as an ancestor, he's got some seriously clay feet. It was a wonderful talk, and I learned a fair amount. Uh, I never got a really good history of, of Darwinism foundation in grad school or otherwise, so I quite enjoyed it. Uh, and so we end all of our podcasts with the fun question of, what do you do for fun outside of reading and writing and coming to Notre Dame to work with theologians and everything else? Well, you know, academics isn't a nine-to-five job. Um, it's a life. You know, I do crossword puzzles for fun. I've always loved Broadway musicals. I, I'm a Broadway baby. And, uh, you know, especially as you get older and, and less active, there's more crossword puzzles and a lot more 
time spent sitting down <laughs> rather than running around. Um, I've been very fortunate in that uh, I have a spouse, my wife, Peter, who um, does a lot of work and uh, allows me the time to just sit down and, and uh, read and stuff. But the fact is, I'm an incredibly boring person. Well, we do allow for all of our guests after we ask that sort of um, uh, setup question to, to, to say that if they do like what they do, that reading about what they write about for work is also can also be fun. So, so that's an allowable answer. It's not that we're boring. It's that we actually do this stuff in our sleep, some of us. I've always, you know, I just like seeing my name in print. <laughs> but I also must say, after seeing your talk, you do have an excellent grasp on pop culture, but you include lots of movie references and, and throughout your talk. Uh, so you don't just read and do crossword puzzles. It, it does seem like you consume other forms of media. True, but you, you know, Kara, you can't do movie references in, for undergraduate classes anymore because undergraduates really don't know the movies. Um, and I haven't listened to popular music in 20 years, so I have no idea what's going on in the world of popular music. So really, the only pop references that I use in classes are The Simpsons, because I know my students have grown up with The Simpsons, and The Simpsons also work cross-culturally. I mean, they get The Simpsons in Germany, uh, in China, and you know, The Simpsons are everywhere. So one has to be very careful with uh, especially old people doing um, <laughs> cultural references. I think Mark Kissel might disagree with you. He's a giant Simpsons fan mm -hmm. and has tried and failed a number of times to bring Simpsons references into the classroom <laughs> because oh, a generation just doesn't watch it, or at least the older stuff. Um, well, you, you have to be like me and have 16-year-olds and you get one like brief window of being able to connect because they're close enough in age to undergrads that it's essentially the same thing. So I have about five years, I think, and then... <laughs> It'll be gone. But, but even in that, it's, they collect memes on their phone, and I don't collect them, so I don't. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the youngest in this interview pool right now, and I have no clue why people would collect memes. Anyway, John, if people want to get in touch with you and hear more about your work, how can they do that? They can read my damn book. All of them. <laughs> Give us a title again. What's the damn book called? Well, the most recent one is Is Science Racist? Uh, the one before that, Tales of the Ex-Apes. The one before that, Why I'm Not a Scientist. Um, somewhere in there, there was a textbook, too, The Alternative Introduction to Biological Anthropology. And hey, what's the new one you're working on right now? The new one is Why Are There Still Creationists? That won't be out for at least a year, I should think, because uh, it's currently in review now. Short answer is that creationism, as we experience it right now in the 21st century, is very different from the creationism that Darwin uh, was criticized with, and in fact, very different from William Jennings Bryan and the Scopes trial. Young Earth creationism, which is what most creationism is right now, um, really dates only from the 1960s, and it's not primordial, it's actually very reactionary historically. So and that was another thing that I learned from your talk on Friday, that I hadn't realized the change in creationism and the different forms over time as well. That's um, funny, the creationism evolves. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> wanted to say it, but then didn't want to say it. <laughs> you could say it. Say uh, it. Chris, how can people get a hold of you? You can find me on the Twitter at Chris underscore L-Y, on Instagram, I forget what it's, Cheech Sweet. Because we never use Instagram. I have an email. <laughs> We're too old. All the things. But you, 
Yeah. What about you, Kara? Can people you can find you out there? I'm not on, I'm technically on Instagram, but only to follow one friend who is a photographer. Uh, I've never- I'm reaching the kids. The kids. I'm reaching those kids that we were just talking about. Oh yeah, those kids. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Akabak. And we've been the Sausage of Science. Uh, we're affiliated with the Human Biology Association. We have to thank our wonderful producer, Caroline Owens, for making us sound intelligent and smart and articulate. And please like us, share us, rate us, uh, so we can spread the Sausage of Science as far as possible. John, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Nice talking to you, Chris and Kara. Thank you, John.